If you have your Bible, you can open up to Genesis 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, this morning is kind of where we pick up, in some ways, the speed in our series in Genesis. Uh, we're over halfway through our series in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, and we're only on Genesis 3. So we've got to pick it up. Uh, we'll essentially go a chapter or multiple chapters at a time from here on out, uh, starting this morning by looking at Genesis, all of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, several years ago, uh, we realized uh, there was something wrong with our clothes washer in our house. So we would go into our laundry room and we'd put our clothes in the washer uh, and then start up the machine. And at one point throughout the cycle, it would start to shake extremely violently and make a really loud banging noise. And so if you were in the laundry room at this time, it kind of simultaneously felt like you were in an earthquake and a war zone being shot at. And once our laundry was finished, we'd go in and we'd open it up and we'd get it into our dryer and realize that there was water all over our laundry floor. It was pretty obvious, okay, something is wrong, something is broken with our washer. The reality is it doesn't take a genius to realize that something is broken. Like, it never takes a genius to realize that something's broken. But then that brought up two other questions for us. What's wrong with it, and can it be fixed, and if so, how? The same reality applies to the, the world and our lives in this world. It doesn't take a genius to realize the world is broken and messed up. Like, you can see it if you read or watch the news. You see crime, death, corruption, the, the return of the dreaded lanternfly, spotted lanternfly. They're going to be back worse than ever, the news told me this week. It doesn't take long to just see and hear different things. Like, well, this world is messed up. Something's wrong. It's broken. Or, or you probably see and feel it in your own life as well. Disappointment, sickness, relationship problems, death and just the day-by-day -day difficulties and problems that we encounter in life. Something is wrong. This world is broken. But, but seeing and experiencing the brokenness of this world then leaves us with questions like, what's wrong with the world? And can it be fixed? And if so, how? The, the passage we're about to read this morning, Genesis 3, offers an answer to both of those questions. And it starts by answering the question, what's wrong with the world? By holding up a mirror and saying, you and I are what's wrong with the world. You and I are what's wrong, more specifically, our sinfulness is what's wrong with the world. Because part of what's both fascinating and heartbreaking about Genesis 3 is that it not only tells us the story of where things went wrong originally, but it tells us the story of where things go wrong day after day after day after day in us. That the story we're about to read gets replayed in our lives over and over and over and over again. That, that just like Adam and Eve, we're not content to live as a part of God's story and, and do things his way. But we, we want to write our own story with us as the author and the director, and the main point. We, we seek to write a different story than God. In many ways, I think that's part of what sin is, seeking to write a different story than God. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that. We're going to see 
Uh, first of all, what leads us to sin against God, what, what our response to our sin tends to be, the results of our sin, and then ultimately and finally how God responds to our sin. And so I know, I know this is probably a familiar passage for many, but we're going to read most of the chapter uh, starting in verse 1 and then up through verse 21. Let me pray for us before we read. God, we, we are in constant need to be shaped by your word, in constant need to hear your voice, in constant need to have you soften and transform our hearts and renew our minds so that we might live in relationship with you and might live in worship of you day by day. And so God, we're asking that you would speak to us through what is both a heartbreaking and yet hopeful story in Genesis 3. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In the first verse of what we just read, we're, we're introduced to a serpent. 
who we know from later in the Bible is Satan showing up in the garden in the form of a snake to tempt Eve and Adam. And he seeks to get the man and woman to rebel against God. But notice, he doesn't just say, hey, do you like mangoes? That's, that's what the fruit was on the tree, just in case you're wondering. Uh, my study this week confirmed that. He doesn't say, hey, hey, do you like mangoes? Well, then you should rebel against God and just eat of this tree and do what he said he, you shouldn't do. No, he doesn't do that because he's not dumb. He's crafty. And we need to know that and remember that. Instead, he seeks to get Adam and Eve to believe a specific story about God that would then lead them ultimately to turn against him and disobey him. And it's the exact same story that he tries to get us to believe day by day by day about God. It's the story that our sin believes about God. That first of all, we doubt God's goodness. This is what the serpent's question in verse one is meant to do. He asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? First of all, notice that he twists what God says. God doesn't tell Adam and Eve they can't eat of any tree. He just says that they can't eat of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's asking a question that's meant to call into question God's goodness. Here's what this question might be compared to. It might be like one teenager coming up to another teenager and asking him, do your parents really make you be home by 10 o'clock every single night? Your parents really do that? What's, what's implied in that question? Man, you really have the worst parents in the world. In fact, I'm not even sure they love you. That's what Satan is implying when he asks this question. He's trying to get Eve to start to doubt that God is really good. Because when we start to doubt that God is good, then we start to believe his words and his commands are ultimately went to squash our joy and kill it rather than promote it. And when we believe that lie, we're headed on a road for trouble. Because then the next thing is we deny God's authority. The serpent effectively goes on to, in his next question, say, what right does God have to tell you what to do? Why, why should he be calling the shots? You're smart people. You should be like God. In fact, if you just eat of this tree, you will be like God. See, sin starts to ask, what right does God have to tell me what's right and wrong? I'm a logical, smart person. Why should he get to call all the shots? How does he know what's best for me? Why, why should I trust his words? Isn't the Bible thousands of years old anyway? It's 2023, come on now. See, in some ways, the essence of sin is that we put ourselves in God's place. We sit in the judgment seat and we get to call the shots. And when we start to believe that, the next logical step is that we disobey God's commands. Once we've started to believe God isn't really good, and he doesn't have the right to tell us how we should live, then the next logical step is to disobey him. One person compares this whole scene to, to this. He says, imagine that you are out on a lake water skiing, holding onto a rope, being pulled by a boat. 
and the tempter comes up next to you and just says, hey, how's it going? I see that you're uh, holding a rope there. Did the boat driver really say you have to hold on to that rope? Do you see him holding on to a rope? Are, are you sure he can be trusted and what he said can be trusted? I, I'm sure that if you drop that rope, you'll actually have more fun. You, you should just get rid of that silly thing and you'll enjoy yourself a lot more. If, if I drop the rope in that scenario, why do I drop the rope? Because I've come to believe the boat driver isn't good and can't be trusted. Genesis 3, 1 through 6 is saying, if we disobey God, why is it we ultimately disobey him? Because we've come to conclude or believe he isn't good, he can't be trusted, and he doesn't have our best interests in mind. Now, th- this is important for many reasons, but let me just point out two. It's important, first of all, because the biggest question you and I need to ask and answer every single day is this. Can God be trusted? The the biggest question you and I need to ask is not, first of all, will I obey God? It's, first of all, can God be trusted? Like, can I really trust him to take care of me in this area of my life? Can I really trust that he's got my best interests in mind and that his commands are good? See, sin always starts with us buying into the lie that God's not good and he can't be trusted. And and here's the, the second reason this is really important for us to see. Because behavior modification will never fix what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us. Simply saying to ourselves or others, stop doing this, start doing this, won't work. Because behavior always lies downstream from belief. Or or another way to put that is behavior always exposes what we believe underneath. So in, in that area in your life where you keep struggling with sin in the same way over and over and over again. What, what we need is not simply to say, Kyle, just stop doing that. What we need is to ask some probing questions and say, what, what am I believing in my heart or not believing about God that is causing me to keep living in this way? If we want to change, it starts with changing what we believe, which is why... We so desperately need the gospel, not just to fix this broken world, but to fix our broken hearts, because it's ultimately the gospel that changes what we believe about God. But, but we'll, we'll get there later. First, we need to see what our natural response to sins tend to be, tends to be, or, or the story that we tell about our sin. We find what happens in verses 7 through 13. Adam and Eve immediately recognize they've done something wrong. They sense their guilt for their sin, symbolized by they realize we're naked. (laughs) Their eyes are open, they realize they're naked. But then they show us what is true of every single human being when it comes to the problem of sin. What do they do? What do they do next? They try to fix it on their own, right? When it comes to sin, every single human being who's ever lived is prone to be a DIYer, a do-it-yourselfer, that we are prone to think we can take care of it, we can fix it. So we should ask, well, how do Adam and Eve do that? Therefore, to see how we do that as well. 
And there are two big ways we can see in this passage, and I think it's the two biggest ways we still try to take care of sin on our own. Here's the first one. We try to cover it up. Notice notice what they do. We saw this a couple months ago when we we had the uh, sermon on the story of clothes. They, They make these fig leaves and put them on. Why? To try to deal with their sin and deal with the guilt and shame it's caused by covering it There's a a great kid's book, and maybe you've read it to your kids before or heard of it, called Arlo and the Great Big Cover-Up that I think illustrates this so well. In in this story, there's a a young boy named Arlo, and during his quiet time, he did a very naughty thing. He pulled out a permanent blue marker and drew a nose and two eyes on the wall. And he immediately senses, oh, I did something wrong. And he feels this guilt and he's, I've got to do something about it. And so what he proceeds to do is he, he gets all his toys in his room and he starts to stack them up as high as he can and eventually stacks them up so high that, that the mark is covered on the wall. And yet when his mom walks into the room, all the toys immediately come crashing down and reveal that the mark is still right there, right where it's been all along. We do the same thing in so many different ways as we try to cover up our sin. And yet I think one of the biggest ways we're prone to do it, especially in the church, but not just in the church, is that we try to be good people who do good things. We try to be good people who do good things. In other words, we we try to convince ourselves we really aren't that bad because of all the, the good we do with our lives. And so we, we think, okay, what do good people do? Whatever we have in our mind that good people do, we, we do those things and we think that somehow it will cover over our sin or, or out, outweigh it. And so we, we go to church and we care for the poor or we try to be good parents and we try to help other people or, or whatever else it is in our mind that these are good things. And it's not that they aren't good things, they are. But we do them trying to prove to our, ourselves or others or God, we're, we're really not that bad. In fact, we're actually quite good. But what's the problem with that? The problem with putting our confidence in our good works to cover up sin is that it's simply like stacking up a tower of toys to cover up a mark on a wall. It never works. It'll come crashing down. It won't fix the problem. In fact, actually, it'll just make the problem worse. Because in that scenario, why are we trying to be good? For ourselves. Right? Just to prove that I'm good, which, which is just another form of pride. And so we're just adding to the mark in the long run. So when fig leaves and hiding behind trees doesn't work for Adam and Eve, well, then what do they do? They try to deny responsibility. The same thing we, we try to do, that we try to deny responsibility for our sin. Adam says, I can't be held responsible for this. The woman you gave me, she made me eat of it. I'm sure that comment landed Adam in the doghouse forever, right? Can you you imagine that? Hey, Adam, remember when you threw me under the bus in front of God? Eve says, I I can't be held responsible. It was a serpent. He he made me do it. Do do you hear what they're saying? They're justifying, minimizing their sin to say, I can't be held responsible for this. If you uh, were a child of the 90s or a teenager in the 90s, 
uh, you likely heard a song from the band The Verb Pipe, probably only one song, a song called The Freshman. And it's sung from the vantage point of someone who's done something bad and feels the guilt of it. And he sings over and over and over again in this song, I can't be held responsible. And then goes on to say this, for the life of me, I cannot believe we'd ever die for these sins. We were merely freshmen. That's what Adam and Eve are saying. I can't be held responsible. I was merely a bystander. And we do the exact same thing over and over and over again in our lives where we try to make excuses for our sin. And if you say, no, I don't do that, let me kindly say, you don't know yourself. You don't know yourself if you, like, we all are so prone to make excuses for our sin. I'm only impatient because my, my kids are misbehaving. I'm only angry because people are just so annoying. I'm only bitter because that person really did me wrong this time. Like, we, we are professionals at justifying our sin. Or maybe we look at our sin and we say something like, well, sure, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not blank. What are we filling that blank in? At least I'm not a murderer. Right, we usually tip the scales pretty good in our scenario when we say that. What's interesting is is Mark Jones says in his book, Knowing Sin, the, the only reason if you haven't murdered someone yet, the only reason you and I haven't done that is because of the grace of God. He says this, Did you refrain from murdering someone today? Such restraint came from God whose grace alone kept you from prison and your upcoming murder trial. I'm great against that, but I would say it's only when we realize how bad we are that we give up hope of trying to fix ourselves and that we stop justifying, denying, minimizing, covering up our sin and trying to fix it ourselves and rather take it to God, who's the only one who can possibly fix it. Because he's the only one who can take care of it, as we'll see. But first, we need to see what the results of sin are, or or the story that our sin creates. Genesis 3 tells us uh, the story our sin creates is a life and a world that's now full of brokenness. One person says that, or or many people say that we're kind of designed to flourish in four different relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with ourselves, and relationship with this world. And in Genesis 3, you can see every single one of those relationships fracturing, breaking, and becoming spoiled by sin. Which is just another way of saying everything, everything is broken by sin. Here's a way to picture this, albeit an imperfect way. If you, if you imagine that every area of this life is like a ripe peach that's just full of goodness. And so you take any area, marriage, work, relationships, kids, leisure, vacation, rest, any area at all, all these different areas of life that, that are meant to be good, then we could say sin makes every single peach be rotten. Sin has caused every single peach to be rotten. Every single area of this life is affected by sin. And that's not to say that there's not still goodness in all areas of this life. Even a rotten peach 
will have sweetness to it and good parts of it. But there will be parts of it that stink and taste really, really bad. Sin has caused every single part of this life to be broken in some way. And this helps us to make sense of the world. Like this is where I would say the Christian worldview, it makes better sense of the world we find ourselves in than any other worldview. Because it can help make sense of both the beauty and the brokenness we have in this life. We can say this world is so full of goodness and beauty because it's created by God and designed to be that way. And yet it's also so full of hurt and pain and disappointment and death and suffering because our sin has caused it to be that way. Or the way that someone captures this, it says, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Man, I feel, like, do you feel that? It's not the way it's supposed to be. And Genesis 3, 14 through 19 tells us the reason it's broken, tells us the reason it's messed up, tells us the re- reason it's not supposed to, the way it's supposed to be because of our sin, and that the brokenness of this world is ultimately God's judgment on sin in general as he lays down this curse and and, and then these sentences get passed. See, the the story tells us there are always consequences to sin. Always consequences to sin. Not just in, in, in the start, but throughout the rest of history as well. Genesis 3 tells us sin destroys, breaks, poisons, and kills. Not just the original sin, but also all of our sin as well. And we need to know that and believe that because if we do, it will help us to take sin seriously, fight it ruthlessly, and see through its lies clearly. When we look at Genesis 3 and we see how the the devastating consequences of sin, it does not allow us to then say, a sin is no big deal. It rather helps us to see sin seriously, fight it ruthlessly, and take its lies, or see its lies clearly. But even in the midst of seeing sin's consequences in Genesis 3, we should ask, what's the worst part of sin? What's the worst part that we see in Genesis? What's the worst thing that we read in Genesis 3? Sin destroys our relationship with God. To me, the saddest words that we read in Genesis 3 are found in Genesis 3.8 where it says they, speaking of Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It's almost hard to read that verse without tearing up in some way because here's the God who is so good, so kind, so wonderful, and Adam and Eve run away from him. It, it, it would be a little bit like if you walked in your house at the end of a day and opened up your door and your kids screamed bloody murder and ran to their bedrooms. That's a heartbreaking picture. This is a heartbreaking picture to see. Genesis 3 shows us the worst part of sin is that it brings spiritual death, that sin cuts us off from God, who is the very source of goodness. And so all the other effects and consequences of sin are just an outworking of that or flow from that. And that's really, really important for us to grasp and understand because it's really easy for us to look at some effect of sin in the world and think if we can just take care of that, 
everything will be a lot better. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't care about the effects of sin in the world and, and restraining evil. We absolutely should. And that's part of what we do in our work, like we talked about several weeks ago, being instruments of God's grace and restraining the effects of the fall. But when we see that all of it has at its source our broken relationship with God, it can keep us from putting our hope in the wrong places. Our, our hope is not in better political leaders. Our hope is not in more information and education. Our hope is not in more and better technology, better communication. Our, our hope is not in more therapy and better mental health. Our hope is not in better medicine and a cure for cancer. Our, our hope is not in a better economy and lower gas prices or any other place we might be prone to put our hope. It's not that those things aren't things we should be concerned about, but, but those are just the effects of sin, and they don't ultimately deal with the problem of sin underneath. Genesis 3 is telling us all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the sadness, all the pain in this world ultimately flows from the fact that we've been alienated from God, cut off from him by our sin. And when we grasp that, it keeps us from putting our hope for ourselves or this world in the wrong place, and rather encourages us to put it, put it in the right place in God himself. And then this is where we see that as sad as Genesis 3 is, it's also incredibly, incredibly hopeful. Because what we find is the story that God had always planned. Genesis 3 and the rest of the Bible tells us God has a plan and a purpose for sin. And we could add all the effects of sin as well. Let me ask a question here. Is sin outside of God's plan? Or maybe a better way to ask that is sin outside of, rogue from God's sovereign control and will? The rest of the Bible would tell us, no, it's not. That sin is part of God's plan. Genesis 3 is part of God's plan that God ordained and chose for sin to enter into this world. Like if, if we want to hold firm to what the Bible teaches and to the truth that God is sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, then we must affirm that God planned and chose for sin to enter into this world. He is not responsible for sin. Humans are. Those are the two truths that the Bible affirms about sin. If you want to see these in just one verse, you can look at Acts 2.23, where it talks about Jesus' death and the fact that God planned that and chose that it would happen, and yet men carried it out and are responsible for it. But we might ask then, well, Why? Why would God plan and ordain for sin to enter into the good world that he made and cause so much destruction? Why? Let, let, me, let me respond to that by referring to a conversation Jared Wilson talks about in his book, The Story of Everything. He relates a conversation he had with his oldest daughter, Macy, where she comes up to her father and she asks him, why did God make Adam and Eve if he knew they weren't going to obey him? Why didn't he create people he knew wouldn't screw things up by sinning? That's a really good question. How are you going to respond to that? 
Here's what, here's what Jared said in response. I don't know why God does all the things he does. Sometimes we can't know why God does some of the things he does because he's God and the way his mind works is too confusing for us. But I think the reason God made Adam and Eve knowing they would fall from glory is because he decided this, ver- this version of the future was preferable to every other version of the future. This is where usually if you're having this conversation with a kid, they respond and say something like, I like dinosaurs. And I think, whew, close one, thank goodness. Yeah, I like dinosaurs too, buddy, let's talk about that. But Macy responds and she says, well, why, Dad? How would you respond to that? Here's what Jared says, I have it up on the screen, listen to it. Think of it like this. God is writing a story with the world. You and I are a part of that story. Adam and Eve are a part of that story. For some reason, God decided that this story would be a better story than any other, mainly because this story gives him glory in a way that other stories wouldn't. God uses sin to display just how great and glorious he is. It's as a result of sin that we see the glory of God shining all the more brightly as he responds to sin. We can see this even in Genesis 3, that God's response to sin upends our expectations of him. Dane Ortland says, we tend to project our natural expectations about who God is onto him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself says. Genesis 3 helps to correct our natural expectations of how we think God responds to our sin and surprise us with how he actually does. Yes, God responds with judgment and consequences, but ultimately he responds with mercy as he pursues and promises and provides And in every single one of those areas, it upends what we would expect him to do. Let's just look look at these and think about these. Notice, first of all, God's pursuit. After Adam and Eve sin, how does God respond? He comes looking for them and calls to them to draw them out of hiding. This is not a God who shows up on the scene and says, How dare you ruin my world? and then launches into an angry lecture. Like this is a God who shows up and says, where are you at? And then bends down on his hands and knees and says, come back to me. Come back to me, tell me what happened, we'll take care of it. I think so often in our own sin, we're prone to picture God responding by pointing a finger and scolding us or or folding his hands and just glaring at us. And yet what we find is God pursues us, comes after us, gets down on his hands and knees and says, tell me what happened. Confess, repent, and come back into my loving embrace. Then we find God making a promise, the greatest promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. What's God saying there? Satan, someone is coming who's going to kick your butt, who's going to stomp on your head and crush you, who's going to undo all the evil that's been done today, and who's going to make a way for humans to be delivered. I think so often when we sin, we expect to hear God speaking words of condemnation, 
I can't believe you. You really blew it this time. You good-for-nothing humans, why can't you just get it right? And instead, he's speaking promises of grace over us in those moments. Promises like, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And then we find God making provision. In verse 21, we hear that God provides Adam and Eve with garments of skin. What just happened there? What just happened? God killed an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve with good clothes, better clothes that would cover up their sin in that moment. He's providing a substitute. He's saying, I'll take care of your sin, not by crushing you, but by crushing something else in your place, or more specifically, someone else. See, see, when we sin, I think we expect sometimes that God's going to drop the hammer on us. He's really going to come down hard on us this time. But instead, what we find is that God drops the hammer on his son in our place. As Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was crushed for our iniquities. See, see in Genesis 3, even as God pursues and promises and provides, he knows this journey ends with his son hanging on a cross in our place. And so the message to us in our sin is God has pursued you to save you in Jesus. Trust in his promises. Trust in his provision. But, but if you reject him, if you reject Jesus, you will not only be expelled from a garden, you'll be expelled from God's presence and goodness for all eternity and face the consequences for sin. The only way for Genesis 3 to be undone without you and I being undone is for Jesus to be undone in our place. The only way for what we read in Genesis 3 to be undone without you and I being undone is for Jesus to be undone in our place. And think about how Jesus does this. This is incredible. We're wrapping up here, so just stick with me for a moment because I think it's incredible to see this. Think about how he does this. When Jesus goes to the cross, he dies in order to forgive our sins. And we think, yeah, that's Christianity 101. But what does that mean? It means we don't have to fix our We don't have to fix the problem of sin. We can stop trying to cover it up and stop denying it and minimizing it and instead confess just how bad we are, confess our sins, and receive God's grace day by day by day. And not only that, but Jesus severs the lie that causes sin in the first place. He cuts its head off because he says, you want to see how good God is? Look at the cross, and you see how good and trustworthy our God is. If God gave up his only son to save us, how could we ever look at God and say, I don't think you're good. I don't think you actually, I think actually you're out to get me and ruin my life. That's utter foolishness. Rather, we should and can say, look at how good he is. Look at how good he always will be. He's for us. How do I know that? Because he gave up his son to die at the cross for me. And then in Jesus, when Jesus raised back to life, He's showing us all the consequences and effects of sin in this world will one day be undone. Because what happens in Jesus' resurrection? The worst consequence of the worst sin in history is undone. The Son of God died, but then he's raised back to life. And so his resurrection assures us every single effect, every single consequence, every single bit of brokenness in this world will be undone by him. See, it's at the cross that Jesus says, 
Your sin has been dealt with. It's taken care of. It's at the cross that Jesus says, look at how good your God is. And it's at the cross that Jesus said, says, or at his resurrection that he says, everything sad about this broken world will one day come on true in my hands. Like those three things are worth us believing, celebrating, rejoicing, and singing about today. And so let me pray for us and then we'll sing together again. God, we praise you. We, we bless you with David like he does in Psalm 103, saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. God, help us not to forget all your benefits. You are the one who forgives our iniquity, removes it as far as the east is from the west, and the one who promises to heal all of our diseases and all the brokenness of this world. You're the one who redeems our lives from the pit and gives us steadfast love and mercy. God, help us to live as those who recognize, yes, we are worse than we ever thought because of sin. And yet, as those who know beyond a shadow of doubt and hope, yes, but we are more loved by God than we could ever imagine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.